Well, if you would take a copy of the scriptures and turn to Psalm chapter 32. Let's read in our hearing Psalm chapter 32. A mascal of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Amen. Let us pray. Holy Father, we thank you that you are a condescending God who has given us your word. So Father, when your people are gathered before your word, please feed us, Father. Pray that the Holy Spirit would minister the truth of this word according to our need for your glory. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this is the second sermon in a series that I've been tasked with from the elders on the topic of Christian assurance. Now you'll remember in the first sermon, we looked at Christian assurance defined. We looked at it as a duty of all Christians to attain and maintain assurance of their salvation. And then we looked at Christian assurance as a delight, that Christian assurance fuels our joy and our communion with the Lord. And so today's topic, I've titled the sermon, Forgiveness, Godliness, Assurance, Repeat, because this is the cycle of the Christian life. So, relief. Relief is what General George Washington and Henry Knox both wanted to experience at the turn of 1776. Washington was despairing because of the lack of troops and machinery and because of the ever-present threat of the British Army attacking them as they were encamped outside of Boston. Washington had received word that Fort Ticonderoga, which was located at the southern end of Lake Champlain, had been abandoned and that there were weapons there that he could use against the British in Boston. Enter Henry Knox. Henry Knox was a young man, 25 years old, full of energy and ambition, and he suggested that he lead a group of men 
to this fort to recover the guns. And of course, Washington agreed. They traveled over 300 miles to the fort, and they found 58 mortar and cannon guns, which weighed no less than 120,000 pounds. And in the dead of winter, this group of men were to take them 300 miles back to Boston over lakes, over mountains, and in snow. On top of this, there was a time crunch. Add to it that Knox was a promising but unqualified young man. One can imagine the relief that both Knox and Washington felt when Knox and his group returned to Boston without losing one cannon or one man. Now that relief is something like the tone of this psalm in front of us. David today is going to teach us something of the relief that comes with the forgiveness of sins. Because forgiveness of sins is likewise a matter that is seemingly against all odds. How can a just and holy God forgive and have fellowship with an unholy sinner? But precisely because it is this way that forgiveness brings the relief that it does. It truly is an objective reality, but an objective reality that we feel in our bones. It gives us a release and fuels our joy in God. So in today's chapter, we're going to approach uh, this psalm under three headings. The first will be David's twofold benediction in verses 1 and 2. The second will be Yahweh's swift discipline of David in verses 3 through 5. And then in the remainder of the chapter, we're going to look at David and Yahweh's words of counsel to us. So first, look at verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom Yahweh counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now these two verses function as the main idea or the thesis of the psalm. So let's presume for a moment that King David is reformed. And let's presume that he's putting together a confession of faith or a creedal statement of beliefs. And he goes through his chapters and he finally gets to the chapter on the forgiveness of sins. Well, these two verses would certainly be proof text in his chapter on the forgiveness of sins. But unlike our tendency to leave matters in the abstract, these opening verses are not academic statements to be left on a page. They are blessings, and they are blessings that come from the God who alone has the authority to forgive sins. And they are realities that David, King David, had to learn in his believing experience. And in today's chapter, he's going to detail an episode from his life where he learned these things. And in so doing, he's going to teach us to do the same. So notice firstly that these are truly pronouncements of blessing. We would correctly call them benedictions. We could also correctly call these indicative statements. Another way of saying it could be, happy is the one, happy is the man, etc., etc., But this is not an adjective describing an emotional state, although emotions are involved. Rather, it's a noun depicting a state state of being and a state of existence. These blessings, those who receive these blessings, are in a state of wholeness, similar to the shalom that Yahweh promised believers in the Old Testament, a state of wholeness and peace, body and soul, in relation to God and in relation to neighbor. Notice, secondly, the recipients of this blessing. Who are the recipients of this blessing? 
They are all those who turn to Yahweh, the one true God, in faith and repentance. Notice in verse 2, David says, blessed is the man. He does not say blessed is the Jew. He says blessed is the man. That is the generic word used for all mankind, Adam. In other words, David is teaching us in these two verses that Yahweh's offer of forgiveness is open to the nations. It's open to all who will come to him in true faith. Even in the Old Testament, God's redemptive purposes were not limited to the natural offspring of Abraham. His intention from the beginning has been to bless all nations. Yet at the same time, we have to ask a second question. Who are the immediate recipients of this psalm? Who would this psalm have been read to? Fellow Israelites in the covenant community. But David is teaching members of the covenant community the blessing of forgiveness. I think David is trying to teach us something implicitly here. And I think our own confession of faith states it best. In chapter 26, it says that the purest churches under heaven are subject to mixture and error, even in the new covenant, even when we try to fence membership to regenerate members only. In other words, even in the new covenant, it's possible to profess true conversion, to be joined to the covenant community, and all the while to lack this blessing of forgiveness. David is implicitly teaching us here not only that Yahweh's offer of forgiveness is extended to the nations, but he's teaching Yahweh's covenant people do not depend merely on your covenant membership for these blessings. These blessings must be realities that you experience in your life. And notice, thirdly, the content of this blessing. Now, poetry uses a literary device called parallelism. I want you to follow me real quick. This is a dense definition. Parallelism is expressing similar ideas from different angles in corresponding lines. Parallelism is expressing similar ideas from a different angle in corresponding lines. And so Hebrew poetry is no different. So, for example, in the first part of a verse, the writer will state a truth, and then in the second part of the verse, he will state that same truth, but he'll state it a little differently. And it's like a jeweler turning a diamond to see its beauty from different angles. And that's what David is using here in these first two verses. He is turning forgiveness over like a diamond to show God's people the beauty of it. So David uses, he does this first, he uses four different words to express two different ideas for sin. In verse 1, he uses the words transgression and sin. And in verse 2, he uses the words iniquity and deceit. The words in verse 1 denote sin as a specific breach of the law of God. It's a specific action or want of conformity unto the law of God that you can point to and say that is sin. The words used in verse 2 speak of the pollution and the subsequent guilt that comes upon a person when they sin. So, sin brings pollution, it's deceit. Uh, Sin also brings guilt, judicial guilt, before God is judged. But David doesn't stop there. The beauty of forgiveness is that David is saying, the covenant Lord forgives the specific breaches of his law. The covenant Lord 
cleanses from the pollution of sin. And the covenant Lord does not impute the sin, the guilt of the sin of believers. And the Apostle Paul actually quotes these two verses in Romans 4 to argue for the doctrine of justification by faith alone. So following the Apostle Paul's interpretation, which is correct, this pronouncement is not just a blessing of forgiveness, but it's the blessing of justification, and that in the Old Testament. Sinners have only been saved by one way, post-fall until Christ returns. Sinners are only justified by faith alone and Christ alone. That's what this blessing is. And the instrument or means by which somebody obtains this blessing is faith and repentance. That's what David says in the second half of verse 2. He says it's for those in whose spirit there is no deceit. The cause of forgiveness is in God Himself, but the condition of forgiveness is faith and repentance. Praise God that we don't cause forgiveness, we cannot. The cause is in His character. But the condition of forgiveness is faith and repentance. A Christian does have many faults, but dishonesty is not one of them. A crooked heart will and has damned many souls. Forgiveness requires complete transparency before God, and nothing less will do. Now, the Old Testament theology of forgiveness has as its backdrop the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. And this is what is informing David here in these two verses. And David in particular has in mind, he has in mind the two goats that were used in that sacrifice. One was used as a propitiation, and one was used as an expiation. A propitiation being the quenching of the wrath of God, and an expiation being the separating of the sins from the camp. Propitiation is extinguishing the wrath of God and an expiation is the removal of the sins from the people taken outside the camp. So I want you to do a thought experiment with me. Imagine for a moment that you are an Old Testament believer and the solemn day of atonement has arrived. You've appeared in the assembly for worship and yet your conscience is distressed as you draw near to the holy God. Your conscience is distressed because you are mindful of your sins. You're mindful of your remaining corruption. You're mindful of the past you cannot change. You're mindful of the mercies of God to you in the previous year, but how utterly inadequate your response to those mercies has been. And in the midst of this wrestling, you watch as the high priest sacrifices the first goat. He slaughters it. He takes the blood and he goes into the tabernacle, into the Holy of Holies, in which he alone was permitted to draw near only once a year. And you know that he sprinkles the blood on the mercy seat. And you know the sacrifice was accepted because he returns out of the tabernacle unconsumed. And your conscience realizes then, the wrath of God against me has been quenched. You watch as the high priest then goes to the scapegoat and he lays his hands on the head of the goat and he symbolically imputes all the sins of the people from the previous year, audibly confessing them. And you realize then, that goat will bear my sin. 
that goat will bear the sins of God's people. I don't have to. And you watch as he takes the goat and gives it to the appointed runner, and the runner takes it outside the camp. And you watch, as it were, as your sins go away. That goat was banished from the favorable presence of God that you may remain in it. Brothers and sisters, we also have a substitute and a better one than two goats. We have a substitute that does not deal with our sins once a year. We have one that did it once for all. We have one who is our propitiation, who is our scapegoat, who is our righteousness, who is our forgiveness. And he is the one that the Old Testament believers saw in these sacrifices. He is the one that David is speaking of in these two verses. Through this substitute we receive the blessing of forgiveness and the blessing of justification. And when we look to this substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ, day in and day out, with transparent confession of sin, He continues to be all of these things for us. This is what He declares to you today. Take heart, my son. Take heart, my daughter. Your sins are forgiven. But though this blessing of forgiveness is rich, David experienced this richness only after repentance from remaining sin. Look with me at verses 3 through 5. David writes, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Again, this blessing of forgiveness is not an abstract truth to be left on a confession of faith. It is an experiential reality in the life of the believer. Now, we can't be certain what sin David has in view here. Scholars are divided. Some commentators think that it's a further insight into his adultery with Bathsheba. Others say, no, 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 that's not in view here. We simply don't know because David doesn't tell us. He simply transitions into verse 3 and he expects us to learn from his experience. And I think that it's perhaps best that he does not tell us what sin he has in view. Our confession of faith has a wonderful line in chapter 15 on repentance. And this is what it says. Although there is no sin so small but that it deserves damnation, yet there is no sin so great that it shall bring damnation on them that repent. And such is the teaching here. So first notice in these verses, Yahweh's immediate, Yahweh's prolonged, and Yahweh's painful discipline. It was immediate because David knew that he had sinned, but he refused to confess it. He says this in the first part of verse 3, for when I kept silent. It was a prolonged discipline. He writes that it was all day long and that it was day and night. It was an indeterminate amount of time. As long as David refused to confess his sin, Yahweh refused to remove his hand of discipline from David. And it was painful. Dramatic language is used here to express the pain of the discipline. David says his bones wasted away. 
that he was groaning. The word in the Hebrew is roaring. He was roaring like a lion in pain from this discipline. He says that his strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. We know what that feels like. But he's speaking of his soul. His life juice, as it were, was sapped in a feverish heat. He was right in saying, your hand was heavy upon me. Now God is not a softy. He is not a piece of slop from the mess hall. He he is not an ethereal blob that we can shape and fashion according to our fancy. He has a character and he acts always in accordance with that character. And he is our heavenly father and he knows how to take us to the back room for a spanking. There is nothing soft, there is nothing malleable, there is nothing excusing about Yahweh. We can confess that God is a forgiving God, but also say He's not an excusing God. It reminds me one time when my football coach thought about me. I was a senior in high school and I was a greenie first string lineman. But it seemed to me that our coach was growing increasingly grumpy with us. And it worried me because I wanted to please him very badly. You could even say I feared him. So what does one do when you're 18 years old and you feel like your coach is upset with you? Well, during a lull in one of my classes, I went straight to his office and I asked him point blank if he was disappointed in me. And his face softened and he explained to me that he had to be tough on us because we were high school boys. He said if he wasn't tough on us, we would become complacent. Now, of course, I walked away relieved. I walked away encouraged. But he gave me a new perspective for the rest of the season. I realized that every time my coach got on to me, it was to make me a better football player. And herein lies one of the most reassuring attributes of God, his faithfulness. Yahweh is doggedly committed to His promises, which which means He is doggedly committed to His people, which means God will not leave us alone. Theologian Dale Ralph Davis put it well when he wrote that Yahweh's jealousy is the price we pay for Yahweh's love. Yahweh's jealousy, His jealousy to His covenant people is the price that His covenant people pay for being loved. If you are God's child, God is out to get you. But He's not out to get you for punishment. He's out to get you for covenant, for fellowship, for communion. I think it was the Puritans who likened the Holy Spirit as the hound of heaven, the hound that pursues as His prey all of God's elect. And He will catch every single one of them. God has covenantally bound Himself to His people, and we have bound ourselves to Him through faith in Christ. So, of course, God is going to use every tool in His redemptive tool shed to keep us close to Him. Yahweh's wounds are tokens of Yahweh's love. And this discipline of conviction of sin should actually give rise to assurance in our lives. We typically think, as a Christian, when we're convicted of sin, oh, God must not love me. That's the farthest thing from the truth. That's proof He loves you. And Hebrews is very instructive here. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7 says, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as unbelievers. No. God is treating you as sons. Verse 10, He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. 
But the corollary of this is also true. If we have a lack of discipline from God, if we have a lack of conviction of sin, that should actually give rise to a lack of assurance in our lives. Hebrews 12, verse 8, If you were left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you were illegitimate children and not sons. Again, do not rely simply on your covenant membership. Now, Yahweh's discipline of David had its intended goal of restoration. Look at verse 5. David writes, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. He writes that he told himself, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And then he proceeded to do it. And then he quite matter-of-factly says, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Now, this is simply the Old Testament equivalent of 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9. If we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. David acknowledged, he confessed. The word that John uses in 1 John 1, 9 literally means to say the same thing as. So David in this instance confessed all his known sins exactly as God defines them in His word. He did not hold back. Spurgeon once remarked about this type of confession. He said, We must as far as possible unveil the secrets of the soul, dig up the hidden treasure of Achan, and by weight and measure bring out our sins. I don't think Spurgeon's advocating for morbidity, for being overly introspective. I think he's simply acknowledging the fact that we must be honest with God about our sins. And did you catch the wordplay that's being used here? The word play between David's covering and Yahweh's covering in verse 1. By confessing sin, David gave up the exhausting business of covering his sins up. Because there's really only two ways to deal with sin in our lives. Either we cover them or God covers them. But either way, they are known to God and they're known to us. There's a, there's a concept in agriculture called the law of the limiting nutrient. And it basically teaches that the growth of a crop is limited by its most necessary nutrient at any given time. So, let's say a farmer is growing cotton. Cotton needs a lot of nitrogen. So, this farmer can tack on as much potassium, as much phosphorus as he wants. But if he doesn't supply the nitrogen that's needed for that crop, the crop's not going to grow. The crop's going to wither, and it's eventually going to die. And Christians operate by the same principle. We can read Scripture as much as we want. We can pray as much as we want. We can worship. We can serve. We can be engaged in good works. But if we don't deal with the sin of our, in our lives, that sin becomes the law of the limiting nutrient. It limits our sanctification. But the hope in this is not in our infallibility in confessing our sins, The hope is not that we can know by morbid introspection all of our sins. The hope is that in the muck and mess of our sin, God is willing to get His hands dirty. He's willing to pluck us up out of the muck, wash us, and put us on a rock. Because the truth is, the God we've provoked with our sin is the same God that commands us to go to Him with it. And when we confess our sin, He forgives immediately. He will never bring it up again. 
there's a there's a scene in uh, the first of C.S. Lewis's books in the Chronicles of Narnia and uh, the magician's nephew where uh, the little boy Diggory first speaks to Aslan. Now Diggory had been the one that brought the white witch into Narnia. It was his fault. He was foolish. So he first approaches Aslan to ask a favor. He wants Aslan to heal his mother who is dying. But the closer he gets to Aslan, the more terrified he gets, the less willing he is to ask for this favor. When he comes up to Aslan, he's so fearful that he cannot even look him in the face. He only looks at his paws. They're ginormous, and it terrifies him. Aslan does not acknowledge the favor that Diggory wants. Aslan begins to interrogate Diggory about how the white witch came into Narnia. Diggory tries to beat around the bush. As he does so, Aslan begins to growl and get angry. And Diggory realizes, ah, I have to be honest. And he says, I brought her here. It's all my fault. And in this moment, Diggory, he looks up at Aslan. And wonder of wonders, he doesn't see an angry lion. He sees a lion with big, bright tears in his eyes. I think if we understood that there is more grace in God than there is sin in us, that God is more willing to forgive than we are to go to Him for it, we would be more willing to confess our sins. One of the most breathtaking scenes in Scripture is in Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve had sinned, Yahweh walks in the garden and pursues them. And He interrogates them. And He does so in order to announce His good news of grace. How could we not confess our sins to such a God? Lastly, we're going to look at a double word of counsel in verses 6 through 11. So David has taught us of the double blessing of forgiveness. He has recounted Yahweh's dealings with him and discipline. And finally, he's going to conclude with a double word of counsel. David's going to give us counsel and say, in light of my experience, this is how the believer should live. But it's a double word because Yahweh himself interposes in verses 8 and 9 and gives us counsel as well. So let's look at David's counsel first. David gives us counsel in verses 6 and 7 and verses 10 and 11. Look at verse 6. He writes, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you. What prayer? The prayer he himself offered in verse 5, the prayer of repentance. This isn't just a generic prayer. This is not the Lord's prayer he's referring to. He says, Therefore, let the godly offer prayers of repentance to you. And by implication... David's telling us, do not put it off like I did. But notice also, who were those instructed to offer this prayer? The godly. I like in the original, in the Hebrew, it actually says the covenant ones, those who are in covenant relation to God. And this is really instructive for us on numerous fronts. There's two extremes we have to avoid. On one extreme, it is wrong to teach that Christians are sinless in this life. That teaching should be banished from the true, the true church of Christ. Read Romans 7. But on the other hand, the extreme to avoid is that it's wrong to treat your sin glibly as if it's not a big deal. We must keep our balance here. On the one hand, sin is cosmic treason against a holy God. 
And one sin warrants eternal damnation of a sinner in body and soul. But on the other hand, if we repent of our sins, God forgives and forgets. We must walk the balance. As Martin Luther wrote in his 95 Theses, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended that the entire life of Christians be one of repentance. So David asks us in this verse, how do you respond when you sin? Do you go to these extremes? Do you think it's not a big deal? Do you delay, perhaps for unfounded despair, thinking God will not forgive? Do you put it on the table and dissect it morbidly? These are lies. Do not believe them. Believer, go to your God, plead forgiveness, and having received it, move on. Do not make a monument in front of it. David continues in verse 6. Look with me. He says that we're to offer this prayer to God at a time when he may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. So waters, the oceans, the sea, these, were all sim- these are symbolic of a lot of different things in the Old Testament. Uh, but two of the things we particularly see in the Psalter is they're symbolic of trouble and they're symbolic of judgment. So elsewhere in the Psalter, David will pray to be delivered from troublesome waters, and he's speaking of circumstances. For example, in Psalm 18, Psalm 69. But I think in this instance, I think David has in view here judgment from God, and in particular Yahweh's judgment on sinners from which they can never return. And I think this is the case because he uses this picture of great waters to illustrate what he says right before at a time when he may be found. In other words, David is saying there comes a day and a time when God may no longer be found, when his grace and mercy can no longer be received. And we have numerous examples of this in Scripture. We see it in the flood narrative of Genesis 7. We see it in the drowning of the Egyptians in Exodus 14. And David is telling us that such judgment does come from Yahweh on sinners. There truly are sinners who are judged by God and never return. From the instance of sin until the death of the sinner, the door of mercy is wide open. But the moment that final judgment falls, there is no going back. And it's then that there will be occasion to despair. But the point is that that is tomorrow and today is the day of salvation. The point is that for the godly, for the covenant ones, they escape this judgment. And they escape it through intimate prayer. Because the only place to escape God's judgment is God's mercy. And David goes on to describe this mercy. Look at verse 7. David says that Yahweh is his hiding place, Yahweh is his preservation, and Yahweh is his singing deliverer. The Lord Jesus Christ, he is our hiding place because we can and are commanded to go to him with the struggles of the soul. Struggles that we might not go to anyone else with, we are commanded to go to the Lord Jesus in confession and plead for help. This is what he said he was and what he would do in Matthew's gospel. He said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, 
For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He's our hiding place because we're united to Him by faith. We are safe in Him. This is the message of the gospel. This is the message that the Apostle Paul preached. Believe into the Lord Jesus Christ. Be united to Him by faith. Jesus is also our preservation. This is what the Apostle Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1 verse 4. He says we've been born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. It is preserved. And Yahweh is also His people's singing deliverer because as the Lord Jesus taught, there is more partying in heaven over one sinner who repents than a hardened Pharisee who refuses to. Now this is who God is. As I said earlier, He has a character and He acts in accordance with that character. This is who God is. A hiding place, a preservation, a singing deliverer. And this is who He is to those who trust in Him. Those who obey the Holy Spirit's voice today, Hebrews 3, have no judgment from God tomorrow. When Moses asked to see God's glory, this is what Yahweh proclaimed Himself to be. Turn to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. We've seen those words before. We've seen them in verses 1 and 2. That is who Yahweh is. That is who the one true living triune God is. And that's who He is to those who trust in Him. To those who go to Him in transparent confession and repentance. To those who believe in Him. But those who are wicked, those who are dishonest, those who are crafty, those who are polluted, those who are guilty. This is who He is in the second half of verse 7. He says, who will by no means clear the guilty. So this is who Yahweh is to His covenant people. And this is also who Yahweh is to those who refuse to come to Him through Jesus. So it's no wonder that David writes in verse 10 that many are the sorrows of the wicked. But steadfast love, there's that word again, surrounds the one who trusts in Yahweh. The wicked experience temporal judgments from God in this life for their sin. But those temporal judgments are always seasoned with hope. As we've been learning in our Bible study through Revelation, there are warning signs. God is saying, there is final judgment coming. Turn now. But David teaches that there is a coming day when the wicked sorrows will be many and they'll be final. But Yahweh's covenant ones escape that judgment. They escape the waters of judgment because they are shut up in the ark that is Christ. 
So, if Yahweh is this way, if He is this way for His people, then we would be glad to respond to His word of counsel in verses 8 and 9. Let's read those briefly. Yahweh says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, for it will not stay near you. Yahweh is basically commanding us here to keep our consciences tender before Him. He says we don't need to be like a horse or a mule. In other words, don't be one of Yahweh's covenant ones that He has to force by the hand to obey. Keep your conscience tender before God. And we feel the import of this when we collect all the words that are used. Yahweh says He will instruct, He will teach, He will counsel. And He will do all of this in the way, and He will do this with His eye. I think this verse is the Old Testament counterpart to what Christ said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 and 16. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. And the point of this verse is Yahweh is saying, I promise you my presence, and I promise you my wisdom to get you through that way. To get you through that narrow gate. Yahweh is saying that his storehouses of wisdom are open for his people's taking. And the gaze of his fatherly eye is set. And do we not need this in the ups and downs of life? Do we not need this when we suffer? Do we not need this when we're perplexed? Do we not need this when we fear we will not make it through the narrow gate? It reminds me of uh, the story of Ruth Clark. She was born in 1741 in a, a somewhat wealthy home. Her father squandered the family wealth. And so she needed to provide for herself and she offered her services as a domestic servant. And she did this in the home of the well-known evangelical preacher Henry Venn. And about a decade later, Ruth was actually converted. And she lived a life that testified to the reality of her faith. She bore fruits. At the end of her life, her health started to break down and so she went to live with uh, one of the Venn family's uh, daughters. But to make matters worse, when she was 67 years old, uh, she was hit by a horse cart while crossing the street. And so she was practically on her deathbed. And one of the younger Venn daughters uh, was visiting her and asked her if she had any doubts about her salvation. And Ruth, Ruth replied, she said this, Oh, no, none. He that has loved me all my life through will not forsake me now. I have no rapturous feelings, but I have no fears or doubts. He that has loved me all my life through will not forsake me now. That is Yahweh fulfilling His promise of presence and wisdom in verses 8 and 9. And I don't doubt that many of you in this room could confess the same thing. So, in conclusion, if the Apostle Paul were here, he would probably quote himself and say, what then shall we say to these things? And I hope that we would reply with verse 11. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. 
David's experience began with sin and sorrow, but it ended with relief and repentance, and as it should be with us. And what a wonderful opportunity to express that today as we come to the Lord's table. As Isaac Watts once wrote in one of his hymns, Jesus invites his saints to meet around his board. Here, pardoned rebels sit and hold communion with their Lord. Let us pray. Holy Father, what a true blessing it is to have you as our God. You are the compassionate, covenant-keeping, merciful God. Father, we thank you that you do not leave us to ourselves. We thank you that your Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin in order that we may truly be conformed to the image of Christ. We thank you that when we are honest with you in repentance, that you forgive, that you cleanse, and that we truly can press on. Father, I pray that you would send forth your word with your blessing. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Brother Ryan, for that sermon. It, truly, after we hear of the, the forgiving grace of our God, we can say that steadfast love does surround the one who trusts in the Lord. And so we, we rejoice and we are glad in that. Well, we have the unique privilege today of doing something that I'm not sure that we've done here at EBC yet, um, at least we have, it's been a long time ago, and that is that we get the privilege today of, of observing both of the ordinances that our Lord has given us in one day. Um, in addition to observing the ordinances, we also have the privilege of receiving four new members into our church. And so we have a lot to do here, um, but as we get started, I want to take a few minutes to, uh, to talk about the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. First, the ordinances in general. Our confession makes the following statement in chapter 28, paragraph 1. It says, Baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances of positive and sovereign institution, appointed by the Lord Jesus, the only lawgiver, to be continued in His church to the end of the world. And so what we are doing here today has been commanded by the head of the church. And so we're doing it out of obedience to our Lord. But not only are baptism and the Lord's Supper ordinances or commandments from our Lord, they are also precious gifts from our Lord that are meant to be means by which He mediates to us the blessings of our salvation. In other words, these ordinances are beautiful means of grace that God has given us. Now, both of these ordinances are means of grace in multiple ways. First, both baptism and the Lord's Supper are visible representations of the gospel. The gospel is proclaimed when we observe baptism and when we observe the Lord's Supper. 
Secondly, both of these ordinances are a very tangible reminder of our union with Christ. In baptism, we see the symbolism that we are united to Christ in His death, in His burial, and in His resurrection. In the Lord's Supper, likewise, we see our union with Christ in that, as Jesus says in John 6, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. So we are united to Christ, and that is symbolized both in our baptism and in the Lord's Supper. Thirdly, both of these ordinances point to our union with one another. In Scripture, baptism is always into the church. When a person is baptized, they are publicly professing that they identify with Christ, and by extension, they are publicly professing that they identify with Christ's people. Likewise, in the Lord's Supper, we realize that the Lord's table is a family table. We come to the table together as the family of God. And so it is, both of these are symbols of our union and our, or our communion with one another. Fourthly, both baptism and the Lord's Supper are great means by which God grants assurance to His people. That, that's what the sermon was about today, about the, the gift, the blessing of assurance that comes from God. Well, two of the primary means that God uses to give us assurance is these means of grace, of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Also, the head of the church, Christ, gave the church the keys to heaven and hell. Now this is an often forgotten aspect of the church in our day. Now how does the church wield these keys in such a way that it leads to the assurance of God's people and the purity of the church? We look first at baptism. When a, when a person is baptized, they must first make a credible profession of faith. This means that the elders of the church, to the best of their ability, assess a person's profession of faith. They examine the three criteria that we talked about last week in our sermon concerning how the saints are made visible. First, there is the doctrinal test. And so the elders examine the doctrinal content of a person's profession of faith. Secondly, there is the relational test. The elders look for evidences that the person loves God and loves others. Particularly, do they show genuine love for the saints? And third, there is the moral test. The elders look for evidence that the person is living in obedience to Christ and in ongoing repentance from their sins. After all of this, the elders then let the church know of the person's desire to be baptized, and the church as a whole is given opportunity to bring before the elders any concerns they might have regarding the credibility of this person's profession of faith. And so, after this rigorous test, the church, wielding the authority that has been given to her by Christ himself, then baptizes the person. This is a great means of assurance for that person because their assurance is not left up to themselves or their personal feelings. In essence, what is being communicated to the person being baptized is this. Brother or sister, based upon your profession of faith that we have deemed credible by the above criteria mentioned, we have confidence that Christ has in fact saved you and therefore we rejoice to call you brother or sister. And we welcome you into the family of God. And so baptism is a great means of assurance for the person being baptized. Likewise, 
The Lord's Supper is a great means of assurance. Listen to what this one writer says because I think it's very helpful. He says, When understood rightly, the Lord's Supper functions as God's ordained means whereby the entire congregation exercises its authority to strengthen and encourage our personal sense of assurance. How is this so? Well, it is so because in effect, what happens when you partake in the Lord's Supper is that the church is saying to you, brother or sister, if you are at this table, then take heart and have assurance because God's people who love you and have made a covenant promise to watch out for your soul have been examining the genuineness of your profession of faith and we find that your life and conduct is in keeping with a person who is truly converted. And so just as baptism is the church in unison stating that we believe that you are a Christian, the Lord's Supper is the church in unison stating we believe that you still are a Christian. And so it too is also a great means of our assurance. If you are welcome to this table, the church is saying we believe you are a Christian and therefore you are welcome to this table as a covenant member in God's family. And so with these great blessings in mind, let us now observe these two ordinances, starting first with the ordinance of baptism. If you would please stand, we're going to sing hymn number 291. After the singing of this hymn, we will have the baptisms, and then we will sing two more hymns before we partake of the Lord's Supper. Hymn 291 in the Hymns of Grace. <clears throat> 